Welcome to Lo-Fi Lectionary. Hey everyone, and welcome to the Lo-Fi Kitchen episode for, for Luke 9. If this is your first time and uh, you're just jumping in, kitchen episodes are where um, I kind of give my own personal kind of reflections on the story as opposed to just kind of telling the story. Um, as objectively as I can. Um, here I get a little subjective, and if you're if you're a good kicky guardian, you know that everything is subjective. But uh, we're gonna start off with this: birds have nests, foxes have dens, but the hope of the whole world rests on the shoulders of a homeless man. You had the shoulders of a homeless man. No, you did not have a home. I always start off every uh, almost every podcast that I remember to with a song lyric, and that one comes from one of my heroes. Um, and it's a guy named Rich Mullins. If you're not familiar with Rich Mullins, he was um, to those of us in the 80s and 90s, he died in the mid-90s, um, very tragically. It was really sad, but he was a really interesting guy, and he was kind of like a, it, even just musically, he was kind of like a, almost like a Bob Dylan-y kind of figure in um, the the world of Christian music, <laughs> which I, I hate that term, but because it's 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 a thing, you have to use it. Um, just to, to not talk like a like a weird person. But um, Rich Mullins, he was a really interesting guy. He, he wrote um, mostly kind of folksy kind of music, um, but it was before folk music got cool again, so it wasn't really. It kind of always strained with, with kind of a more pop kind of sound, at least a little bit as well, which is why I think it's really sad that he died before folk music got cool again, because I bet he would have made some really amazing music, kind of just being more set free to do like the mountainy music, like uh, like it seemed like he always wanted to, but I didn't know him personally, so maybe I'm wrong. But anyway, I'm rambling. Um, Rich Mullins, who's an interesting guy. So not only was he a musician who wrote a lot of songs that were really popular among churchy folk in in America in the 80s and 90s, he um, he was a fascinating guy because he um, he took a, a vow of poverty, um, and so what he did was is he. Uh, he told his, his uh, record label, he said, every money that comes in, all the money that comes in from my albums and my song publishing and uh, from my tours and stuff like that, send to this person. And it was like, if I remember right, it was like an accountant who was affiliated with like the church he went to or something like that. And then he went to that person and said, the average person in America, like just above the poverty line, like lower than that, makes about this much. Cut me a check for that much, and the rest of it give away to these charities. And he had like percentages, I guess, written out that said where that money should go. And um, he was very successful. Like he's not a he was not like Amy Grant huge, but um, but um, his songs in particular were used in a lot of churches and stuff like that. So he would have seen you know some some money coming in from that. And um, and you know he was a big recording artist, you know, within a very uh, within a certain industry and stuff like that. So he did rather well. And he told you know the the accountant who was in charge of his finances, "Don't tell me how much money comes in. I don't even want to know. Just cut me a check." And so without knowing it, what he ended up doing was was um, like fully funding like orphanages like all around the world and stuff like that, and doing a ton of amazing things. And he and he he didn't even want to know. Um, when I, when I I liked his music as a kid, but when I learned more about his life as I was older, um, I was like, wow, like I want to be something in the world that's kind of like that. And over the last few years, there's been like renewed interest in him and who he was. Um, there's been a book written about him. There's been um, a movie made about his life 
where some of his friends and, and things like that that they've interviewed have kind of felt more free to share more about what his life was like. And he really struggled with a lot of things. I think, um, you know, like from smaller things to most of us that probably wouldn't care about, like he smoked, oh my goodness, he smoked cigarettes, but also that like he had problems with alcohol. He was really lonely a lot. He was depressed a lot, stuff like that. He was really conflicted as a person, struggled with mental illness, things like that. And, um, and for some of us that, or at least for me, I'll speak for myself, that almost makes him more in, endearing because I'm like, oh, like he was able to do great things. And so that kind of makes him a hero, but, um, he's an even better hero because I know that he faced really tough challenges and didn't always win, if that makes sense and stuff like that. And, um, I, I heard him speak once on tape, um, and he made this comment about how people will often ask him, you know, who his heroes are. And he says, St. Francis of Assisi. And and he said that at least once someone challenged him on it. And they're like, well, why don't you say Jesus? You know, like, <laughs> if you hang out with religious folks, you're going to find um, religious folks. Um, I'll put myself in there included. Have a tendency to think that there's always only one right answer. And if, if you're ever around religious folks and don't know what the right answer is, you can always say Jesus. Um, but so someone, well, why don't you say Jesus? Like, like it's obvious Jesus should just be everyone's hero. You know what I mean? And, and he said something like this. Um, I don't have it written down, but, um, he said, well, because Jesus can't be my hero. Cause I, I can't be Jesus. Like I can't do everything that Jesus did. Like Jesus is my savior. He's not my hero, but St. Francis, he said, like got really close to what he thinks Jesus was like. And as a human can be, and he's like, I, I, I can do that. He can be my hero. Um, one of the things I love about Luke is that the disciples can become better heroes to us because of the way they're portrayed. Like if the disciples were portrayed as being like awesome, perfect guys constantly who never got it wrong, who always understood Jesus, who, um, you know, like, like it would, it would, the story would not only get kind of boring and it wouldn't be as much funny or as fun as it is. Um, but you could get a certain sense at a point where you're like, oh man, like, geez, like I'm not one of these three or these 12 or these 5,000 even. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm a chump. Like I can't do almost any of these things that Jesus is telling me to do. So, you know, if that's the standard for what it means to follow Jesus, I guess that that's not for me, you know, but instead in the book of Luke, we have the disciples almost constantly getting it wrong. <laughs> like, like they fail as often, if not more so than they ever get it right. Um, so, you know, in the feeding of the 5,000 story here, they're like, send the people away, like make them go to the villages while we stay here with you, Jesus. You know, we, we don't ever have to leave you, but send these people away, you know, um, uh, you know, there's that story, um, and I wrote down the line cause it's too good. It says, just as they were leaving him, this is when Jesus is on the mountain and then the, the dazzling white moment happens. Peter says to Jesus, master, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three dwellings. One for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah, not knowing what he said, <laughs> like they get sleepy and they're slow to understand. And, and even when they think they understand, they don't get it, you know, then they argue about who's the greatest, you know, next to this person who's like, hey, blessed are the poor. Like, it's not about being great. You know, um, they, they, they have rivalries with other people who are doing good in the world. You know, this other exorcist, they call down fire on people in Samaria, but Jesus turns and rebukes them and they went on to another village. Um, you know, here Jesus is even like you faithless and perverse generation. And there's, there's a kind of sense as if you're a religious person where you're like, 
maybe you found yourself also deserving to kind of be called that same thing, you know, like, man, I just messed up, you know, I am faithless and perverse, you know, or I've wanted to call down fire on people if I could have, you know, or something like that. Um, and Jesus never cuts these people from the team. In fact, he just gives them more and more responsibility and more and more, you know, power and authority like he has to go and do good things in the world. Um, and I think that's interesting. And so it's nice to have these disciples in the story, at least for me, it is because it's, it's, it's almost more encouraging for me to have heroes that have where I, I know their faults, you know, um, because I grew up, you know, in a religious tradition, in a community, in a family that was religious. And that I grew up with this constant pressure, whether people meant to give this to me or not, where it was like there was just pressure to get it right all the time, like to never do the wrong thing, to never cross the wrong line, to never say the wrong words, you know, or whatever, or think the wrong thoughts or feel the wrong feelings, even like things that are fundamental to human nature, I was supposed to resist them because they were bad, you know? And if I got it wrong, it meant that I was bad, you know? <laughs> like, um, you know, there's this, and, and even and, and even beyond our behavior, there's pressure to always understand and get God right and have the right uh, proper checklist of beliefs, you know, as if God was ever easy to understand, you know? And here in the story of Luke, the people who are more close to him are almost the ones who get it wrong and are more confused. Or in the story, there's a little note, if you caught it, it said they were too scared to ask him to explain something they didn't understand. You know, and these are the people we're supposed to emulate, you know. Um, maybe in the end, what we can hope for um, is that we'll get it right just enough that we get to be a part of the story or part of the group. Um, that we don't directly oppose Jesus. Um, and maybe that's that's enough, like I wonder. I mean, maybe to be a follower of Jesus, it's like, it's you, you get it right enough that uh, that you don't end up fully going against, I don't know, like, like and, and even then, because we're going to run into other places in Luke or even the people who go fully against Jesus, like he's forgiving and loving and inviting towards them. Um, maybe in the end, we can the story of Luke is the story of God is a story in which God comes down and invites everyone to be close to him. And the closer that people get to him in the story, they don't look better. They actually make Jesus look better and they look worse. And maybe that's the most I should hope for as a religious person in the end that that I, I can celebrate that I get to be close to God, but the closer I get, maybe I should just be like, yep, I got so close that I made Jesus look real good right there. <laughs> because I'm faithless and perverse and I, I'm, I'm, I'm messing this up, you know, but I'm trying, you know. Um, when I was a kid, um, I, I listened to, I did listen to a lot of Christian music and I fell in love with people like Mitch Mullins and there was another band that I really loved. There was a band called Five Iron Frenzy. They were like a, a ska punk band and they're really awesome. I, I, I still am today. I'm wearing their sweatshirt right now. And, um, and I, I, when I discovered them, I, I fell in love with them very quickly because in their songs and in their music, their music wasn't like praise music where it was like, Hey, God is great. And, and we're great. And isn't everything great, which is kind of the message of most Christian music, <laughs> um, especially at the time, it seemed. Um, 
And so, like, there's churches would have youth groups, and and there became what 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 I would consider youth group bands, where it was like your your hip cool youth pastor would be like, yeah, we're gonna go to this concert and of this band that's very safe music with safe words in it that's gonna make everyone feel good inside, you know. And so there would be all these bands, even like rock and roll bands, but other rock and roll songs were all about how great God is and how great the world is and how great we are and how everything is just great. So let's all be happy, you know, or if they ever did sing about anything being bad, it was usually about the rest of the world outside of our religious group, how all these people are bad and are oppressing us or whatever, or they did sing about anything being bad. It was, they could sing songs about how like maybe they were once sinners, but now they've been saved and quote unquote set free. You know what I mean? And it was almost always in the past tense. Like I used to be this, but now things are great. You know what I mean? But along came this band, Five Iron Frenzy, and a lot of their songs were about how how crummy they felt about themselves. Like sometimes if they're just like, I'm trying my best, but I just can't get it right. And God, isn't it great that you are so loving that um, you love me even no matter how bad I mess up, but I'm doing my best, you know? So it wasn't like they were like, you know, self-shaming themselves or anything like that. They were just kind of fully aware that of, of how human they were. Um, but about how good God was. And that that suddenly made sense to me. Um, and so they kind of became heroes of mine because they didn't kind of present a cookie cutter, everything is just fine, like view of the world. It was like, yeah, life is hard, but God is good and we're, we're doing our best, you know? Um, when I went away to, to, to school, I'm going to take a drink. When I went away to college, and um, I took, um, I had to take classes in Bible because I was a Bible major. Um, and one of my first Bible professors was a guy named Matt Ringe. Um, and he was a really great, interesting guy. And I love the way that he taught the Bible. And um, he, uh, I remember being in class one day and we were, it was a class on Exodus and Deuteronomy. And some kid like was really challenging him on something like, well, what about this? And what about this? And asking lots of questions. And some of his questions were started to get really particular and really detailed. And he was, you could feel the kid getting frustrated with the professor. And at a certain point, Matt, um, Matt Ringe was just like, like the guy asked a question and he was like, you know, I, I don't know the answer to that. And, and he let like the silence hang for like a pregnant moment. And I looked at the guy who was asking the questions and he was like so disgusted that like a Bible professor, someone who claims to be our teacher would not know the answer to a question. You know what I mean? But when I saw Matt do that, I just like, oh, this guy, I want to learn from this guy because he, he doesn't, he doesn't feel like he needs to know everything. Like he's studying and he's working and he wants to know, but when he doesn't know something, he's like humble and and courageous enough just to be like, I, I, don't, I don't know. And he didn't BS us on an answer like some other professors would. He was just like, I don't know. <laughs> like, I loved that. I've, I've gone my life realizing that the best heroes, the ones that have the kind of character, but also the kind of do the kind of work that I want to emulate are usually the people with very obvious faults. Um, and, uh, so I'm glad that the story here in Luke isn't full of people who just automatically get it right. And so the message of the story isn't if, if yeah, you can follow Jesus, but you got to get it all right. It's like, you can follow Jesus, even if you're a total complete idiot, you know, <laughs> and constantly make mistakes. Um, I think that makes the church very messy. 
because it means that it's full of people who are constantly going to get it wrong. Even people that'll get it so wrong that they're going to want fire to come down and consume others. But thank goodness that God doesn't respond to that, that he actually responds with mercy. Flipping the coin on it, um, I wonder if this says anything about how Jesus in the story, or maybe God in general, if you're a theist, like how they have to receive and interact and look at human persons. Um, um, Because Jesus in the story, like keeps loving all these people and keeps letting them follow him and keeps teaching them and keeps giving them, you know, special power and authority to go be his representatives, not just go do good things, but to do them in his name. Like his reputation is on the line of these 12, you know, or, or more really goofy um, messy people. And these are the people that Jesus is like, yep, like they're going to be my representatives to the world, you know? Um, and that leaves me with a, a real keen sense of, of wonder and just how trusting Jesus is with very messed up people. I had a friend, um, on Facebook recently who um, went and saw the movie Wonder Woman, which I thought was a good movie, but I won't, this isn't my review. But they they posted on there, they were like, I liked a lot of parts of it, and it's kind of a step forward in a lot of ways, but there were, this was wrong with it, and this I thought, thought was kind of troubling about it, and this message that it sends is kind of bad. And they were open air thinking on Facebook about like, well, can I still say that I'm a fan of this movie or that I loved it while still holding very real and making and giving attention to these things that are really problematic about the movie. Not just like, Oh, I thought the story was a little weak. It was like, no, this teaches a message or the people who made this movie, you know, are taking this political stand, you know, or something like that. Like, like very real difficult things in the world. Um, and they were like, can I, can I do both? And I read their quote and maybe it was because I was preparing for a podcast, but the way my head, the dance my head did with that, I was like, oh, I wonder if that's how God, if God is real, has to look at all of us all the time. Like Jesus in the story seems to really love his followers. And yet he's frustrated with them and he doesn't hide from their faults. And he doesn't hide when he needs to correct them. And he rebukes them when he needs to. Um, I wonder if that's how God looks at them as being like, look, I'm a big fan of you. And I'm going to actually promote you. You know, I'm going to give you special, you're going to be my representatives. But oh my gosh, you people, you faithless and perverse generation. You have so far to go, you know. Um, and as a as a spiritual person and as a religious person, I wonder if that's kind of how God looks at all of us as just being like, I'm a huge fan of you. I love your movie. But there's all these problems with it that are very real problems that sooner or later we're going to have to deal with. You know, um, There's a story in the Old Testament about King David. And there's a moment in the Old Testament where it describes King David as being, quote unquote, a man after God's own heart. And I was told that as a kid. And as a kid, I was like, wow, David must be pretty good. But all I knew about David as a kid was that he wrote a lot of songs and that he killed a giant with a sling, you know? 
when you actually read the King David story, King David isn't so great. He's 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 much more like a mob boss, you know, like than about anything else. Like he's he's very um, savvy and with like political power and and moving people around. And even at the some stories where it seems like he's doing the right thing, usually he's doing the right thing in order to position himself to his advantage politically or socially. Um, and he goes out and does a lot of war and he kidnaps and rapes somebody and then kills their husband. You know what I mean? Like it's a really rough guy. Like there's a certain like, and and I'm like, but this guy, a, a man after God's own heart, you know? Um, Cause this guy's a big mess. I mean, there's even a story where he wants to build the temple and, and, and God tells him, look, like you're not allowed to build the temple. You've shed too much blood. To, for me to allow you to build my dwelling place. Um, I had a teacher in seminary who brought this home once when he was like, let's never forget that when that God in the story picks a, a bronze age tribal warrior king who's a brutish man and calls him a man after God's own heart. And I don't think that that really says something about the kind of God that God is and that like, yeah, God was proud of, you know, this guy being a, a brutish tribal king. I think it maybe says something about God and that God is able or wants to see good in, in everybody or wants good for everybody. And here we are today, like thousands of years later, we, we think we're so civilized. But if we want to be a person after God's own heart, you're like, oh, well, God was willing to call this goofy Bronze Age guy and identify him, you know, with him. And uh, maybe we haven't come so far. <laughs> I don't know. Um, if you're not religious, um, this still, I hope, I hope it would pose a lot of questions for us to talk about. Like, I mean, what, what's the inherent value of a person? And where does it come from? Like, are all people worth our time? Um, or worth believing in? Like, as problematic and messy as they are, do we hold out something about them that they could do really great good things or even if they don't do really great good things do we believe that they're valuable and that they're worth saving or keeping around do we still invite and welcome them um, and if so I, I would wonder where that comes from I mean me as a my religion as I was kind of always taught me that like oh they they come from because every God made everybody so he kind of cares about everybody or whatever you know like but I wonder if if maybe even in thinking about that God loves everybody, maybe there's something even next to that, that it's like even without God being part of the story, is there something inherently valuable about people? Um, you know, when I think about my son from the moment he was born, like something very directly communicated to me that this person, this body is valuable. You know, and I, and I can feel that way about my friends and my family. Or when I see someone being victimized, I might stand and protest because I believe that that person is valuable and important and special. And and I, sometimes I wonder, like, do I believe that, that be, just because they're a biological thing that's alive? Or when I feel that way and when I sense someone's value, am I tapping into something very great and deep and true about the world? And about ourselves. 
that might actually draw me to love them and to love all others sacrificially because everyone else is just so valuable and important and good, even when their behavior doesn't show that. Um, and so when I think about the, not just individual people, but about the whole world in general, I mean, this world is so goofy and it's, it's so messed up, but it's so beautiful and good. Um, I mean, you can watch planet earth, you know, and you can see the majesty and beauty of, you know, bugs and leaves and everything out in the earth. And then you watch the segment where it's like the lions attacking the elephant, you know, or the antelope, you know, or whatever. And it's so brutish, you know, but even maybe I wonder, are there only some parts that are beautiful and others that aren't, or is there something about the whole mess of it altogether? That's all beautiful as a whole. And if it is, what kind of people does that draw this, draw us and compel us to be? If there's beauty to be found everywhere, even in the darkest and ugliest places. So yeah, I like that the heroes in the story are messed up. There's hope for me, and I hope that you see that there's hope for you too. Thanks for coming by the kitchen. I'm going to finish my tea and move on. I'll see you guys next week. Have a good day. Hi, everyone. I just want to say a quick thank you to you for listening to this episode of Lo-Fi Lectionary. If you liked the podcast, please help us out. You can review, subscribe, and share the podcast any way you can. Um, the more people we get in on the game, the funner this is going to be. Uh, if you want to participate in the discussion for this episode, you can come visit our website at kevinlester.net and follow the links to the podcast and then to the link for this episode. Um, you can also find our podcast on Facebook, and we can discuss and, and keep things going on there. Uh, just search Facebook for Lo-Fi Electionary, and you'll find us. You can also get in touch with me, Kevin, directly at lofi at kevinlester.net, and that's lofi with no dash, so L-O-F-I at kevinlester.net. And you can also find me on Twitter at lofi kevin with no dash again, so at lofi kevin. Um, that's kind of it. So thank you for coming, and we'll see you guys next episode. Thank you for listening.